much and while Clay is out uh, this week. And so uh, we appreciate that, guys, very, very much, very much. All right. Let's turn to uh, John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We're going to start uh, reading in verse number 13. And today we're going to talk, of, you know, about the problem of man as we look at the cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2. We are starting a new series of sermon in the book of John, and that is entitled Believe. And as we make our way through chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, that will make a, a lot more sense. Um, and so let's, let's pick up in verse number 13 of John 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered him, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But this is interesting in verse 24. Listen to what, listen to this. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord, and I pray that he'll bless the reading of his word. Today we're going to talk about the problem of man. And let me just kind of give you the answer at the beginning of my sermon this morning. The problem of man is spiritual. It's, it's not education. It's not economics. But the problem of humanity is spiritual. And that spiritual problem is called sin. Sin. And the spiritual problem of sin is not external to mankind, like it's out there somewhere getting ready to pounce on us at any unexpected moment. So it's not external, but the spiritual problem of sin is found within man, in the heart of man, in the mind of man. And so as long as there is humanity, there will be sin. There will be sin. There will never be an end to sin as long as Jesus tarries. That's the problem of man, sin. But, good news this morning, and we all know this as Bible-believing Christians, that there is an answer. And there is an answer, and that answer is a spiritual answer, and that spiritual answer is a person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ, you know, uh, is not, you know, inside of us innately, but he is outside of us. And if Jesus is that spiritual answer, then we need Jesus to come into our lives. And what we call as evangelicals come into our heart, come into our minds. And so there is a problem, and that problem is spiritual, and that is sin. And uh, as long as there is man, there will be sin. But there is an answer, 
And the answer is the person, Jesus Christ. He is the spiritual answer to our spiritual problem. And as long as there is Jesus, there is an answer to man's spiritual problem. And so today we're going to look at the temple cleansing in John chapter 2. And what this will do, in, in a very unique way, this will illustrate these two truths. And as we study chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, this will build on itself. And so when we come to John chapter 2, this is after um, the miracle at the wedding at Cana. Uh, Jesus trans- transitions from Cana to Capernaum there in verse number 12 where he spends time with his family. And then in verse 13, we see that that Passover time is coming, and so Jesus transitions from Capernaum to Jerusalem. Now, a lot of people think that there is one temple cleansing in the Word of God. But if you read the Gospels, there are two accounts of a temple cleansing. There is this one that is found at the beginning of the book of John, And then there are two more. There was one in Matthew 21 at the end of Matthew. And then there's one in Mark chapter 11, toward the middle end of the book of Mark. And a lot of people say, well, these are the same temple cleansings. Um, In in what John did, he just took his kind of out of chronological order, just for emphasis' sake. But there is enough difference between these two accounts in John and in Matthew to warrant two separate temple cleansings. And one temple cleansing is controversial enough. I mean, it's controversial. But if there are two temple cleansings, it's reprehensible. I mean, just absolutely reprehensible. And that, and that, and I, in my opinion, I believe there were two temple cleansings. I believe there was one at the beginning of the book of John. There was one in the latter part of the book of Matthew. And I believe this is why Jesus had a target on his back. One is can be dismissed as someone just kind of having an issue and controversial, but the second one absolutely uncalled for and reprehensible. So the question is, why in the world did Jesus do this? Why in the world did Jesus cleanse the temple twice? Well, the first thing we see this morning in our text is because of the corruption of the temple. In verse number 13, it says the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with these sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples, as they were watching this, they remembered that it was written in the uh, Jewish scriptures in Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume me. And so why did Jesus do this? Well, during the Passover, it can get a little bit complicated here. Whenever Passover was approaching, pilgrims from all over the known world, wherever the Jews were located at that time, they would come from all over the known world to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Not only to celebrate the Passover, but to make sacrifice and to pay the temple tax. And because of them, because some of them were coming from a long way off, I mean, this created some issues. Number one was, if you're coming from a a, a long distance, a a faraway land, to come and celebrate the Passover, um, it it was hard for you to bring livestock with. And the the second thing was some people were coming from foreign lands, and as they were coming in, they had different uh, uh, coinage, they had different types of money, 
And, um, and, and what made it even more difficult was the Jews could not mint their own coins. I don't know if y'all know that or not. The Jews couldn't mint their own coins, and the Jews would not use Roman coinage because it had the image of Caesar on the coins. And, you know, Caesar believed he was God, and so the Jews believed that that was a sacrilege. And so you have two problems with the pilgrims coming into Jerusalem. Number one, a lot of them could not bring animals with them. And then number two, a lot of them had to have their coinage exchanged, uh, which was usually done at the Kidron Valley near the Mount of Olives. They had to have their money exchanged to have the right type of coinage. And so in short, the problem with the scene before us is twofold. Number one, um, as humans will do, humans will corrupt, I mean, in our sinfulness, I mean, we will corrupt anything we get our hands on. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the Internet. There's nothing inherently wrong with Facebook. Yes, I'm actually saying that this morning. There's nothing inherently wrong with Twitter. But, man, you let human hands get a hold of those things, and there will be corruption. So the first thing is, is the money exchange. There's nothing wrong with the money exchange. I mean, in fact, like I was telling you, that the, that the money exchange was done in the Kidron Valley outside of the temple. And, and, but the money exchange had been corrupted, um, and, and high rates for exchange um, were, were given. I mean, and it was just absolutely unethical. And so the money exchange had been corrupted. And then not only that, the second thing is all of the livestock and all of this corruption was brought into the temple, into the court of the Gentiles. And because it was brought into the court of the Gentiles, I mean, there was chaos, there was confusion, and there was just a mess. But most of all, there was a lot of corruption. Now, could you imagine that? Taking all of those animals, pigeons, oxen, sheep, I mean, taking all of them and bringing them into the court of the Gentiles, taking all of that monetary corruption and bringing it into the court of the Gentiles. And so why did Jesus act like he did? It's because of the corruption of the temple. And let me just say this real quick. You don't have to bring animals into the church to corrupt it. Amen? You don't have to bring animals into the house of God to corrupt it. You don't have to bring animals uh, into your own life to corrupt your own life. Once you take Jesus out of the equation, corruption follows. If you take Jesus out of the equation in the church or in your life, man, and you insert human wisdom and you insert human pride, there will be corruption. And because of this corruption, the next thing we see is the passion of the Christ. The passion of the Christ. Now, all of this was just too much for Jesus Christ. And to put it succinctly, I mean, he cleaned house. I mean, man, he cleaned house. And, and I like to call this Jesus' early spring cleaning. I mean, man, he takes a whip and he drives the animals. He drives the money changers out of the temple. Now, we have to be careful here. How much we let our imagination get the best of us. You know, usually we think, and, and I, thought, I thought this was a child. Man, I thought, man, Jesus went in there, man, he just lost all control, went berserk. I mean, man, he grabbed the whip and started whipping people, started whipping donkeys, started whipping cattle. I mean, man, he was just, anything that moved, son, it was going to get a whooping. Right? That's what I thought. But, I mean, and, and Jesus just, just I mean, caused a, a lot of chaos. You know, Jesus was forceful. He was forceful in his reaction. And, man, I wish I could have been there. But if I were there, he probably would have whipped me too. But anyway, but it wasn't cruel like we imagine. 
and probably the whip was not for the human beings, but it was probably for the animals. And it, and it didn't generate such a righteous uproar that the authorities from the fortress of Antonia had to come in and just quell the rebellion and quell the riot. No, Jesus' intention was not mayhem, but it was a message. We have to get that in our minds. It wasn't mayhem. He didn't come in just to cause chaos. There was enough chaos. But what Jesus was coming in doing, he was sending a message. And so often we concentrate on the whip and the aggression when we need to notice Jesus' worship and his conviction. And two of Jesus' convictions are very important in our understanding this morning. Number one, Jesus had an inward passion and an inward guardianship of the things of the Father. And that is why in the minds of the disciples, their mind went back to their Judaic upbringing and teaching to Psalm 69.9, where it says, and, and a zeal for your house, for your temple, will consume me. It will eat me alive. And, and in Psalm 69, what that's talking about is David was persecuted. He was made fun of for his zeal and his passion of the Father. And so the first thing that we see in Jesus' conviction and his inward conviction, his inward passion, was a jealousy for the things of the Father. The second thing was his desire for true worship, for true worship, for pure worship. Whenever we get to chapter 4, we will see that Jesus says to the woman at the well, and there will be a day, and it will come, and it has come, that true worshipers will worship the Father, will worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, what he was telling the woman at the well is, you know, true worship doesn't come through ritual. True worship doesn't come necessarily through traditionalism. Even though ritual and tradition are fine, as long as you don't, you know, gear down into ritualism and to traditionalism. But true worship comes from the heart. And he also said to the woman at the well, you know, there will be a day where we will not worship God on this mountain or on this mountain. And so what he was saying to the woman at the well, she was Samaritan, and the Samaritans believed that true worship um, had to be done, you know, at Mount Gerizim. But yet the Jews believed that true worship was done in Jerusalem. And, and these are radical words, and I, and I pray that they'll really be brought to our attention whenever we hit chapter 4 radical words. And Jesus told them there will be a day, and it's coming, and it has come, where we will not worship God in this geographical place or this geographical place, but we'll worship the Lord our God in spirit and in truth. I had to take an archaeology seminar, um, you know, in my PhD studies, which are never ending. And, and I remember my archaeology professor, he said this. He said, you take Jesus out of the Holy Land, and all it is is rock and dust. That's all it is. That's profound, isn't it? We need to be reminded of that. And so Jesus was telling the woman at the well, he's telling the Jews through very unusual means that worship comes from the heart. We can't conjure up worship through our rituals and our traditions. We can't come in here this morning and just kind of generate some type of emotion. And no, no, we, we can't. True worship begins with the heart. 
And we too should have the mind of Christ. We should have the mind of Christ for our temples first, right? Our temples. And we should use the whip on ourselves before we look at anybody else's temple or anybody else's corruption. And the question is before us this morning, you know, what does worship look like in our temple this morning? Does it look pure, honest? Does it look like Jesus Christ? What are we basing our worship on in our temple this morning? All of us have a temple. All of us have a kingdom. What are we basing our worship on? Is it our goodness or our righteousness? Or does it look like Jesus? Are we basing it on His righteousness, on His holiness? And whenever Jesus said, you will worship the Lord your God in spirit and truth, what Jesus was saying is, is the Father is looking for people. Now, don't, you, don't lose me on this. The Father is looking for people who are going to simply be themselves before the Father. And not only are they going to be themselves before the Father, but they are going to be honest before the Father. And he is looking for people who are going to be honest before the Father, but will be uncomfortable remaining themselves before the Father. Because whenever we get before the Father and we truly worship Him, brothers and sisters, there will be change. Amen? There will be change. And so what this does is it serves to show us man's problem. Man's problem is a heart problem. It is a mind problem. And in our mind problem, in our heart problem, what we have done is basically two things. We have misplaced worship. We have misplaced worship. You know, I was thinking last night as I was sitting, as I was laying in bed at 2 o'clock in the morning, staring at the ceiling, going over my sermon in my head. Yes, pastors do that. If they say they don't, they're lying. They're lying. And I was thinking about worship, and, and, and it just popped in my mind. One of the most popular statements that John uh, Piper has ever made, and that was this. You've got to listen closely because it's so clever, but yet so simple. He's, and he's talking about missions. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. That's just good. That's just really profound simplicity right there. Worship exists because missions doesn't. And I thought about our misplaced worship, and I thought about it like this, and I just want to kind of take his words and twist them, so don't tell John on me, okay? Sin exists because worship doesn't. Sin exists when worship doesn't exist. And the problem with humanity is sin, and the problem with sin, or the reason for our sin, is because we have worshipped wrongly. We have placed our worship on the wrong things and in the wrong places. Romans chapter 1 bears that out. In Romans chapter 1 verse 21 it says, For though they knew God, they did not honor or give thanks to Him. For they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And Paul goes on to say that what they did, they gave up you know, worship of the one true God and started worshiping creatures and, and idols and so forth and so on. But it goes beyond that. Think with me just for a minute. It's more than just setting up an idol. It's more than just than worshiping a creature. It's, it's basing our worship on convenience. We will only worship or seek to worship when it's convenient for us. When it's comfortable for us. And brothers and sisters, I really believe there's going to be a time where worship in America is not going to be very comfortable and it's not going to be very convenient. And I really think the church needs to prepare itself for that. 
I don't want to be an Aaron Downer this morning, but sun is coming. The writing's on the wall. Amen? Or we worship whenever it's conventional. We worship whenever it's cultural. Whenever it's safe to worship in our culture. Or we worship whenever it's ceremonial. And ultimately, what we're doing when we base our worship on those things, we are worshiping self. We are worshiping what we want, what appeals to us, what looks good to us. And whenever we worship like that, based on those things, it will have a profound effect on our lives. It really will. You know, the other day, you know, I, I, I thought very negatively about someone. I know y'all never have that problem, but man, I do. And I was thinking very negatively about someone, and it felt good, and it felt right, and I rationalized it. And by the way, it wasn't anybody in the church, so don't don't think it was Travis, okay? But but anyway, but but I thought very negatively, and, and I thought to myself, that's not worship. That's sin. Because where there's an absence of worship, there is sin. Am I right? Is the Lord right? Right. It was sin. And then I thought to myself, I have to rearrange my worship. And when I rearranged my worship, ta-da, I mean, I had a, a much better view of that person. And Jesus said in Matthew 22, we are to love the Lord our God. We are to worship the Lord our God. Same thing. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. And we are to love our neighbors as we would love ourselves. And the reason why we don't do that is misplaced we are worshiping the wrong things. The second thing that flows out of the heart is a mishandling of the things of God. You know what? God has made us stewards of great things, the earth, material possessions. I mean, He has. He's blessed us. and has made us stewards of wonderful things. But there is one thing that God has made us a steward of that we, we don't recognize, and that is the truth. The truth. As children of God, as image bearers of God, as the redeemed of God, God has made us stewards of the truth. And that is the truth of His Word. We are to be good stewards of the truth of His Word. We are to be good stewards of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? We are to be good stewards of the truth of what God taught about sexuality. Now, we don't we don't want to go there because that makes us uncomfortable. But that's the truth. We are to be good stewards of the truth about what constitutes a family, what constitutes a marriage. We are to be good stewards of what constitutes right and what constitutes wrong. And whenever we do not worship God the way we should worship God, whenever we misplace our worship, then we are very, very tempted to mishandle the things of God, those things in which God has made us stewards. Am I making sense this morning? And these things are not hidden from God. Our misplaced worship is not hidden from God. When we mishandle the things of God, they are not overlooked. It's not as if it's like we had led around us and God can't see into our heart. God sees our hearts. 
boy, this is really going out in the first and second, third, and fourth chapters of the book of John. And so let's just don't stop there. Things get more interesting. A lot more interesting. In verse number 18, starting in 18, we see the confrontation by the authorities because you know the authorities cannot leave Jesus alone. It says, so the Jews are really there. It's really the temple authorities or some representation of the Sanhedrin. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, I want you to notice what the temple authorities do here. When they come in to confront Jesus, there is no reflection on what has happened, none. There is no self-examination. They, they are more concerned about ritual and authority than right worship. Are, are, are you with me? They, look what they're more concerned about. They're not more concerned about right worship. They're not. They're more concerned about their ritual and the authority. And, 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 you know, and Jesus, you know, you stepped out of the order of service in the bulletin. And rather seeing their corruption and rather seeing their irreverence, you know, and repenting of their sin, what did they ask Jesus to do? Jesus, give us more teaching on this. Jesus, please enlighten us on this because, you know, we know that you're not some normal person. No, what do they do? They say, well, if you're that big of a deal, Jesus, then give us a sign. Give us a miracle. And what they're wanting is they're wanting God to be a vending machine. They're wanting God to be a trick pony for them. That They want healing. They don't want a Savior. They want a miracle. They really don't want the Messiah. And so they say, give us a sign, Jesus. Just give us a sign. And Jesus does not give them a miracle, but once again he gives them a message. And that message is absolutely bewildering. What does Jesus say to them? Oh, what does he say to them? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now you think about that just for a moment. Just think about how revered the temple was in that day. And not only that, but the temple had been rebuilt for 46 years, and it still wasn't complete. And what Jesus is saying to them, you tear down this temple, and I will rebuild it three days in completion and in perfection. And so here is Jesus, you know, punching back at them, and he is saying, man, I have so much authority. I have so much power. What I'm going to do is I'm going to supersede the temple, and I'm going to do something that a thousand workers have yet to do. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to rebuild the temple in perfection and in completion. And what Jesus was talking about, he was talking about his body, he as a person. And so here's what Jesus is saying. I'll close with this. Jesus is saying that he is the temple, that he is the temple. And what Jesus is doing is he is superseding the temple. And, and, and part of Jesus' ministry is superseding what had come before him. Jesus supersedes the law because he is the in-flesh law. He is the Torah in bodily form, right? Jesus supersedes Mo Moses, Abraham, everything. I mean, Jesus supersedes absolutely everything. And here in John chapter 2, he says, I will supersede. I will be greater than the temple. 
Think about what John said in John 1.14. And the Word became flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. The Word tabernacled among us. He templed among us. So no wonder they wanted to beat him up and persecute him, right? And the second thing is, he said, if you tear down this temple, meaning if you crucify me and you bury me, then I will rise again on the third day. I will rise again in victory. And not only will I rise again in victory, but my resurrection will show you that I am perfect. I am the perfectly completed and finished temple. I am perfect in worship. I am perfect in obedience. And I am perfect in sacrifice. And the next thing that Jesus says is that what he's doing is he's foreshadowing here that through the Holy Spirit, Jesus would come and he would tabernacle inside those who put their trust and faith in him. Are you with me? That if we put our faith and our trust in him, if we see Jesus Christ as the answer for our problem, if we confess our problem and we look to Jesus Christ as a cure for our problem, that he will come and he will tabernacle within us through the person of the Holy Spirit. And he will begin to transform our worship. Will our worship be perfect? No, it will not. It will not be perfect completely. It will not. But through Jesus Christ, our worship is perfected. And he will begin to transform our lives. He will begin to transform our worship. He will begin to transform our desires. And as he is doing that, what he is doing is he is building us into a spiritual temple called the church or his body. And so what is the problem of mankind? It's a spiritual problem. It is sin. It's sin. But the answer is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ tells us right here that he is the temple. That he is perfect in worship, he is perfect in obedience, and he is perfect in sacrifice. And if we come before him and if we admit our problem, if we confess and repent of our sin, then he comes in and he becomes the tabernacle in our lives. And we receive his perfect worship. We receive his perfect obedience. We receive his perfect sacrifice as if we did it ourselves. Amen? Amen. And then once Jesus is in us, through the conviction and the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit, he will direct our worship rightly. He would start transforming and changing our hearts that worship rightly and worship in the right direction. And this morning, let me ask you something. Two things this morning. Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? I mean, do you really know Him? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that you have a right relationship with God? Do you have peace and hope in your life? It only comes through Jesus Christ. It only comes through Christ. That's it. It only comes whenever Jesus comes and tabernacles within us through the Holy Spirit. And you say, Aaron, I want that. When it, when it comes by admitting that you're a sinner, that you got a problem. Right? you got a problem. And, and by the way, church is an every Sunday Sinners Anonymous. 
where we come in and we say, we got a problem. But we know that Jesus is the answer. And we just want to come back corporately and we're just going to say we all got problems and we're just going to recognize and do it afresh that Jesus is the answer. And so have you recognized that you've got a problem? And the second thing is, you need to repent of that problem. You need to recognize it as a problem between you and God and repent of that problem. Father, I am sorry that I have sinned against you. And you need to recognize that, that Jesus was crucified for your sins. He paid the price for your sins. And he resurrected on the third day. And by faith, if you believe that, and if you confess Him as Lord, then He will come into your life, and He will start transforming your worship. I'm going to tell you what, men. Is my worship what it should be? No, but I'm glad it's not what it used to be. And so I pray that you'll do that this morning. Second thing is, what about your worship? And let me just say again, before I close, worship is more than just coming to church on Sunday morning and singing a song that makes you feel warm and fuzzy. Worship is loving God with all of your heart and your soul, your mind, your strength, with everything that you have in you. And we fail at that every day. And I praise God that there is forgiveness. But, but but where is your life pointed? What is your worship based on? What does your worship look like? And I pray that this morning, that as the Father looks into our hearts, that He will see us striving to worship like Jesus in spirit and in truth. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all God's people said, Father, we thank you for the day that you've given us to come and worship you in spirit and in truth, and I pray that we have done that. And Lord, I pray that as a corporate body, Lord, that we have come before you this morning just as we are, in honesty, laying our lives and everything about our lives, our problems, our sin, our dysfunction before you. Corporately, once again, confessing you as Lord and the King of our lives. As the worship director of our lives. And Lord, I pray that as we worship you, I pray that we will confess and repent of misplaced worship. Because even though we might be born again, saved, we still will misplace our worship. We will base it on convenience, on comfort, convention, culture. Sometimes we even rely on ceremony for right worship. So Lord, I pray that this morning that you'll forgive us of misplaced worship. I pray that you'll forgive us of mishandling the things that you've put as stewards of. And 
Lord, I pray that we will handle those things wisely, godly, with godly reverence and godly wisdom. And Lord, I pray that once again that we will recognize that you are the temple. That in all things, you have superseded and you have become preeminent. And they tried to tear you down by putting you on a cross, but you rose again on the third day in perfection. And we thank you, Lord, that those of us that have believed on your name, that have confessed your name, that your worship has become our worship, your obedience has become our obedience, your sacrifice has become our sacrifice. Lord, words are are not enough to express how thankful we are for that. Thank you for that. And Father, I pray that through the Holy Spirit that you will continue to transform our worship. transform our hearts that we might have the same passion that we might have the same love for you as Jesus did we ask this in Jesus name all God's people said thank you for listening to this sermon from Edwards Road Baptist Church we hope you are meaningfully involved in a local church but if you aren't we would love to have you join us on Sunday mornings as we worship God and hear from His Word together. You can find more information about our church by visiting our website at edwardsroad.org.